Harvard University's Museum of Natural History was founded by the great 19th century naturalist Louis Agassiz. Passionate and popular at the time, today Agassiz has a mixed legacy. He was both an enthusiastic racist and a denier of Darwin's theory of evolution. Professor Christoph Ermscher of Indiana University at Bloomington is author of a new biography called Louis Agassiz, Creator of American Science. As we spoke during a visit to the museum Agassiz founded, he said the man was hard to classify. Louis Agassiz was a Swiss naturalist. He was a paleontologist. He was a zoologist. He was a marine biologist. Uh, he was an embryologist. There was no limit to his interests. And he brought the comprehensiveness of his interests to the United States, trying to instill love of science in the masses. So let's get Louis Agassiz from... Uh, Switzerland to the United States by starting with his upbringing. How did his upbringing spur his passion for science? He was born in Motier, essentially a small village close to a lake. He was an avid sportsman, avid outdoorsman, avid collector. His father was a country parson who did not encourage um, his plans to become a scientist. And that's what he really wanted to be. And he uh, did not want to become a doctor. That was his father's career plan. He compromised by getting a degree in medicine, but getting a degree in natural history at the same time. And he studied with a great Cuvier, the greatest biologist of his time, as he saw it. And he acquired um, the mentorship of Alexander von Humboldt, who was probably the second great man. So he had enormous, enormous nurturing. So coming to America in 1846, was the best career move that could have happened to him. What also happened is that his marriage fell apart, a marriage with his, uh, to his first wife, who was not equipped to put up with somebody whose main interest was science and hanging out with his buddies in the mountains and trekking on glaciers. She did something unprecedented. She took the kids, left him, moved out. At that point, the invitation came to come to Boston. Louis Agassiz was famous for his work about glaciation. This was big time for Agassiz in his glacier work. I mean, right. yeah. he's really among the very first to say that we had ice ages. He was the first to promote the notion of the ice age publicly. But there were people who had been working on it. There were scientists in Switzerland who had been talking about this for some time. There were even guides, mountain guides, who had discovered things that they would share with Agassiz. Agassiz was always very adept at taking an idea that other people have been thinking about and making it into his and promoting it as such. And he had, you know, as would happen in his career again and again, he had a falling out with somebody who basically said, I did this and you are taking my work. In this case, it was a fellow student that he met in Munich, a man called Schimper, who had been working on similar things and who unfortunately would scribble his notions, his ideas down on loose sheets of paper, but not take them to the public. Agassiz did. So how did Agassiz, the great naturalist, first become recognized for his scientific prowess? He first became uh, recognized essentially for um, his work on Brazilian fish. And he, when he was a student in Munich, he was promoted by one of his professors who was working on a volume about Brazilian fish. And Agassiz was um, the one who completed it. And um, that was essentially what put him on the map. He was very proud and he wrote to his sister at the time, would it not be a great thing if the best book in our father's library is a book written by me? 
And then he embarked on many multi-volume projects, one of which was about fossil fish. That was really what got Humboldt's attention and Humboldt kept encouraging him, work on the fish, complete your fish. We're in the Museum of Natural History here at Harvard yes, that yeah. Louis Agassiz founded. And we're in the room that has all these fossil fish. What of this collection do you think he knew something about directly? This is actually a fossil fish, a coelacanth, a um, fossil specimen that he collected. That was what his multi-volume work um, on fossil fish was about, looking at the past, trying to find traces of life in fossil specimens. Um, on his lecture circuit, one of the things that he perfected, that was one of his party tricks, he would ask audiences to give him a scale of any fish, and then he would, from that single scale, draw in chalk a fish on the blackboard with both hands because it was ambidextrous. And uh, so the fish would emerge and he would ask audiences to weigh in on what else was missing. The fins, okay, the head, and finally a living fossil fish, an oxymoron, would rise before his audiences. Louis Agassiz was very prominent in his time, obviously, but he was also one of the fiercest critics of Charles Darwin and Darwin's yes. theory of evolution. Why did Louis Agassiz so adamantly object to the notion of evolution? He believed that God's hand was visible in creation, that uh, everything that had been created was where it was supposed to be, where it had been ordained to be by God. So there was a divine purpose in nature. He felt, and this is where things get perhaps a tad provocative, he also felt that the scientist was capable of deciphering God's plan to the extent that there really were no secrets in nature for Agassiz. Secrets are there just because you have not uncovered them yet. But it was not a hypothesis that made any sense to Darwin. He didn't need a divine principle to describe nature. He described nature as unfolding on its own terms without any human presence required. There's no human observer required. For Darwin, as he later said in The Descent of Man, uh, there's no more amazing instrument than the brain of the ant. That is not something that Agassiz would have accepted as a working premise. Human superiority was what underlies all of Agassiz's thinking, all of his work. It's very close to Emerson uh, in Nature. Emerson says at one point that the ant is interesting precisely for the ray of relation that goes from the ant to me. So what was the nature of the personal relationship between Charles Darwin and Louis Agassiz? It was a relationship that started with Darwin respecting Agassiz for his knowledge of data. Fieldwork was Agassiz's specialty, and Darwin always relied on observers in the field who would provide him with things that he needed. It started with Agassiz essentially encouraging him to work on barnacles, which Darwin did, and it was a work that was very important uh, for Darwin en route to the origin of species. Agassiz would provide him with specimens. And the more Darwin realized what he was working on and where he was headed, the clearer it became to him that Agassiz would be his main target. And very, very fortunately for him, Agassiz's colleague at Harvard, Asa Gray, a brilliant botanist, became Darwin's correspondent, became his associate, essentially, in promoting the theory. And Asa Gray became quite brilliant at provoking Agassiz into making public statements, into embarrassing himself publicly in service of Darwin's theory. Darwin would continue to write to Agassiz for information uh, that Agassiz then still tried to answer. Darwin sent him a complimentary copy of The Origin of Species, 
offering it, uh, as he said, to Agassiz in the best spirit of scientific inquiry. And uh, the heavily marked up copy is still here at Harvard, Agassiz's copy of Darwin's Origin of Species. He didn't tear all the pages out. He did not. So Louis Agassiz's uh, first wife walks out on him. He's insufferable. Yes, yeah. And he comes to the United States, he gets married, and not just to an ordinary woman, but to one of the first families in Boston, uh, correct, Elizabeth yeah. Cabot Carey, I believe was her name. Yes. How did that work out? It worked out extremely well for him. Uh, he married a woman who was very gifted. She was a talented writer, and she became his public voice, basically. She became the woman who wrote down his lectures, would publish them as articles. She became, later on, the founder of Radcliffe College, which some people see as a direct outgrowth of the kind of training she had received under Agassiz. She was in the field. She would always distance herself from a little bit from what was going on and would say, I'm just an amateur. But in order to write the things she did, she had to be much more than an amateur. So Louis Agassiz would not have maybe been such a big deal without this woman in his life? He was a big deal when he came. He would have had a hard time maintaining his big deal reputation without her. Uh, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we are at the uh, Museum of Natural History at Harvard, he's rather famous for his racism. Why was Louis Agassiz such an outspoken racist? Why did he care? It's a complex story. Uh, race played no real part in his scientific work before he came to the United States. When he came to the United States in 1846, he realized quickly that having an opinion on race, being an expert on race, would further bolster his public importance. He believed in biological differences between races as if they were species. He believed that there were biological differences that made it impossible for blacks and whites to intermarry. And he would publicly talk about these biological issues. All of this sounds very off-putting. One thing that we need to remember is that most of his racial opinions were shared by people at the time. None of this was important for the rest of his scientific work. It is a puzzling, puzzling fact that he got so engaged in it. Do I wish he had not said any of this? Yes. But in part, the book got his impetus from the complexity of this man who had many, many affable, many, many positive sides and had other sides that are deeply troubling. And they're part of the same coin. Indeed, Louis Agassiz had many, many faults, selfish, plagiarizing, racist, braggart, yet he was admired by many people in America. They yeah. looked up to him. Why, do you think? The sheer energy, the sheer passion he brought to his work was deeply admirable. There was a man who would show up in the, in the lecture halls, his pockets stuffed with specimens that he would pull out, and he would hold something up, he would speak with this absolutely attractive French accent, you know, we talk about little fish or little beetles. He would pull these things out and show them as he was demonstrating them. He was a man who would take his students to the beach and would ask them to go bodily into the water. If you can't get the jellyfish out of the water, you need to go to where they are. He would encourage his students to touch things. This was fieldwork in the modern sense. This is what he brought to America. He changed the face of science education permanently. That's part of his legacy. So that's all part of Louis Agassiz, as he was at the time. And it's part of the mesmerizing force that he exerted on the people around him. There's a famous story that he liked to tell that at one point, when his eyes had given out from too much looking, and looking was extremely important to him, he used his tongue 
to taste a fossil specimen, to actually lick it, because he wanted that sensory contact with the specimen in front of him. And that was very, very different from the kind of science people were used to. He believed that science had to be woven into the common life of society, by which he also meant that everybody should be knowledgeable about science. Everyone theoretically could become a scientist, given the proper instruction, which of course somebody like Louis Agassiz could provide. Christoph Imscher's book is called Louis Agassiz, the Creator of American Science. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.